we have a special guest this morning. Now, we're doing Genesis, and a friend of mine has just put out a new book that I think gets published in the U.S. next year, but it's already been published in the U.K., and the, the book is right on target with Genesis. If I were scheming the class out, it probably would have come after next week's class. So we need to get through at least next week's class before it's like point on. But we're going to do it anyway because you guys are just so lucid with the Bible. You can modulize it. Say, okay, I'm going to modulize this. So... Let me tell you who we've got if you don't know him. He's a friend of the class. He is over here in the United States for a number of different reasons. He is the head of Wycliffe Hall, which is one of the the institutions that makes up Oxford University. It is uh, evangelical in its approach to scripture and understanding. Oh, speaking of visitors, that's our grandson Caleb coming in right there, being held by our daughter Rachel. <laughs> and uh, at some point, he may come up here and and uh, suffer not the little children. And um, uh, but anyway, uh, you'll 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 be hearing from Caleb, I expect, over the next fifty-five minutes at some point. Um, maybe not. Uh, he's a great young boy. Anyway, um, uh, Michael is is smarter than a tree full of owls, but disarmingly so. Because he has this really poor sense of humor that seems to leak out of his pores. And when I say really poor, I mean impoverished. I mean so bad it's funny. And I think he's one of the funniest people I know. Um, but he's very clever and quick-witted and very dry in his humor. So if he says something that strikes you as funny, the odds are he meant it. And it's okay to laugh. But would you join me in giving a Texas welcome to Michael Lloyd? Um, please have a seat. It's so good to have you here. Now... You have the, the reason the humor is poor is to get it down to your level, Mark, so you'll understand. <laughs> and so we begin. <laughs> well, well played, Michael. But the class is young. Um, yeah, they look here. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Um, he could run for office. Uh, um, so, what brings you to the United States? Uh, well, we come over a couple of times a year as a kind of, you know, penitential exercise um, <laughs> f- for you, that is. Uh, no, so we come and meet with some supporters and alumni and we recruit students and uh, I, I get inflicted on a number of poor, unsuspecting groups such as yours. Okay, best food you've eaten while you've been here? Well, that was uh, probably... Sashimi down in Sashimi. Uh, sashimi down. Have you in... not gone to Chick Fil A? <laughs> we haven't on this occasion. Um, it, it's better without cooking. Um, well, well, the chicken isn't actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's a quick trip to the emergency room. Um, um, okay, for those who don't know you, yes. uh, give them a little bit of your background. Well, I was born at an early age. 
Um, <laughs> uh, I, I'm, well, I've been, I've been uh, ordained in the Anglican Church of England for, um, since I was about 26. Um, I've particularly had a ministry in uh, cross, straddling the academic world and the church is, is basically my particular thing. So sometimes been a college chaplain, sometimes taught in theological seminaries, uh, and right now I'm running one. And, and how many students at Wycliffe Hall? Um, we have about 145. And do you have undergraduate as well as graduate? We, we do, absolutely. Um, and it's a, small, it's a small college. We like to think we punch above our weight. We've had people like uh, N.T. Wright as a, a member, as a student, and he's now our senior research fellow. We've had Nicky Gumbel, who runs the Alpha course. Um, <clears throat> so a, a number of Alistair people. McGrath Alistair McGrath had your job Packer. some time ago. He did indeed, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Um, you are, um, in some ways, I would equate you to a, a think tank, even though you are a, a college. Um, uh, you, you put out, and your students put out, some of the most prominent works around the world. Is that fair to say? Uh, it's, it's a kind thing to say, and uh, we, that's what we aspire to. All um, right. Well, we want to get into Genesis and want to unfold some passages with you. But you've got down there a new book that I, I told I the class about. Can I put it up here so you, they can you see can it? Indeed. There we go. So tell us, image bearers, restoring our identity and living out our calling. Yeah, it's not asking much, is it? No. This is by Rachel Atkinson and you, Michael I mean, Lloyd. That's right. And the forewords by Tom Wright. And this is uh, some kind of cool artwork. Did, yes. you, did you do that? I, I didn't. Uh, I just spilt the ink and it kind of went like that. And that's divine. <laughs> um, what drove you to write this book? Well, um, Rachel and I had a friend who is a really, really good uh, Christian counselor. Not famous at all, but just helped hundreds of people. Um, and she had these, I think, really good insights into human beings, what makes them tick, what stops them from ticking. Um, and uh, very sadly, she got cancer and she knew she was dying. Uh, so we sat her down and interviewed her and tried to get those insights out of her. What Rachel's done is to write those up um, into uh, about seven or eight chapters. And I've written three chapters on the image of God as a kind of biblical theological framework for the book. Okay, we're going to get into the passage that's based on. Thank you. But uh, no, and you've given me a copy, uh, which I've already started reading, but I have not finished. There you go. Well, insomniacs around the world find my writing helpful. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I disagree. Um, <laughs> they don't find it I, I hate to, I, after the way you started this class, I hate to um, pat you on the back too much. But I still believe your book, Cafe Theology, is one of the best introductions to theology uh, that's out there. And, and I buy it for boatloads of people. Well, thank you. And, and uh, keep inflicting it on people you don't like. <laughs> and, and, and it's in a fourth or fifth edition now? Fourth. Fourth edition. Fourth edition, yeah. Okay, well, I've got some changes for the fifth. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm joking. I'm joking. It is outstanding. So I am assuming... If we open up the Bible to the book of Genesis, 
which is the very first book, Bareshit in Hebrew, um, uh, which Hebrew books typically just have the, are called by the first word in the book. And, and if we were reading this in Hebrew, the first word would be Bareshit, which comes from the Hebrew word for head, Rosh. And so it's at the head of, or in the beginning. Anyway, um, this is the very start of the Bible, and it tells the, the story of creation. And in verse 27, we read this passage that says, uh, uh, well, go back to verse 26, I guess. God said, let's make humanity in our own image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them. I'm assuming that that's part of what you're talking about in this book. That's exactly right. It, it's, it's a hugely important and rich concept being made in the image of God. It's the foundation of both a Jewish and a Christian understanding of what it is to be human. Actually, there isn't a whole lot about it in the Bible other than the passage that you've uh, highlighted there, literally. Um, but you can immediately see... If, can you go d- d- down a little bit? Yeah. So the first thing you might want to say is it's about dominion. It's about rule. The first thing that uh, God says is, let us make humanity in our own image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and and all living creatures. Um, It's about rule. And in the ancient Near East, at the same time as the people of Israel were uh, being formed, if if a king conquered a territory, he, he would put up a statue of himself to know, let people know that he's in charge. And this is basically a way of saying human beings are that statue. They are to let people know that God's in charge. And people often find that a really difficult concept with our environmental concern at the moment. Um, having dominion over nature, ruling over nature, is that not an exploitative thing? Hasn't that given people permission to uh, exploit the, the planet and its resources? No, because the kind of rule we are to exercise over creation is the kind of rule God exercises over us. And that's not exploitative. That is loving. That is protective. That is uh, to do with our flourishing. So that's the kind of rule that we need to have over creation. All right, I want to get into this in some detail with you because I believe this to be very insightful. And while we don't have this language in the image of God um, uh, in a sense of used verbatim in that same Hebrew terminology over and over and over again, we certainly have echoes of it, uh, uh, and we have instruction about it in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so um, I, I want to start by asking you, why does this matter? Why, it, let's say that, look, to the Bible nerds out there, yep. of which I soundly belong, Yes, it matters immensely. It's in the Bible. We're going to understand it. Period. But 
there's ultimately kind of a so what question for people who especially aren't Bible nerds. Why does this matter to, why should this matter to everyone? Because it's otherwise difficult to know what human beings are for. And if you don't know what human beings are for, we don't know who, who we are for, what we are for, what we should be giving our lives to. This gives us, I think, a really, I mean, this is just one of seven things that I think the image of God is about. But together, I think they give you an incredibly rich understanding of what it is to be human. I, I often want to jolt people. I'm absolutely concerned that too many people live like a rat in a cage with one of those little wheels that just goes round and round. And oh, they I, get I up thought that was a pizza, but... <laughs> But I'll take your word for it. No. A pizza would not have had this line at the bottom. Here, let's make it even worse. Here's the mouse. Yeah. Okay. So many people seem to just wake up in the morning and get on the treadmill. And they think life's just about running the treadmill until they're allowed to get off and eat. And watch TV. The pizza, that's where the pizza comes in. That's where the pizza comes in. Watch TV, uh, you know, and and go to sleep. And, And that's just what they do. But I think people ought to be challenged by asking those big questions. Why am I here? What is my purpose other than running on the pizza wheel? Are you suggesting that this gives us answers to those questions? Uh, that's exactly what I'm suggesting, yes. All right. So you've written a book on this with uh, uh, your co-author, Rachel. Yeah, yep. And I would ask you the following as a warm-up question. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? Okay. So I think, there are, as I say, I think there are seven dimensions to this, probably more, but seven that we focus on. Uh, and one of them I've looked at already, the rule, the rule of, of God. We are to exercise loving rule over protection of creation. Uh, we are to reflect God's kind of rule over us uh, into the rest of the world. Um, the, the second thing, if you go to Genesis 9, uh, we're told that we shouldn't murder one another because we're made in the image of God. So it's about value. It's about our value uh, as, as people. Basically, it's, it's quite difficult to ground our value. We all know that people have value and that we ought to treat them decently and we feel bad about it when we don't. But if you have an impersonal view of the universe, it's difficult to ground where that value comes from. Because value is, is a personal thing. You can be valued by a person. You can't be valued by an impersonal force like electricity or gravity or something like that. Are you suggesting that AI, artificial intelligence, does not value me? Do you know, Mark, I know it might tell you that. Yeah. Uh, but I suspect it doesn't care a whole lot. You no. know, we all have... Yeah, no, that's exactly... We all have, most of us, smartphones. These have computers that are better than the computer that landed man on the moon. And yet, I promise you, in spite of what Siri may do for you, (laughs) in spite of what Alexa may do for you, 
there's no real caring for you by Siri or Alexa. It's a stinking machine. <laughs> okay, so... If, if your machine is stinking, you probably need to get it seen to, but... <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's been, uh, yeah. So this gives us not just value, it gives us real value. Yes. And the passage you referenced, Genesis 9-6, is the reference that uh, if, if a man kills someone or sheds blood, then that person's blood will be required because, in other words, don't murder. Because people are made in the image of God. And, and James 3 takes that further. It says, not just don't murder people, but don't speak disrespectfully of them. Yes. Uh, do well, not curse them. Do not uh, diss them yes. in modern parlance. Yes. All right. Um, so it gives us real value. I want to get the, the seven of these down. Okay. It really is a memory test. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I've got my prompt here. <laughs> okay. Um, give us a third aspect of what it means to be made in the image of God. Well, I think the third thing would be equality. Because if you... Uh, in the ancient Near East, again, places like Babylon and Egypt, they had a concept of being made in the image of God too. Only it was only the king. Uh, so, uh, Tutankhamun, you, I don't know if you've been to the British Museum, no, not British Museum, the Egyptian Museum. Cairo. It? Cairo Museum, to, fa- to see uh, the... Uh, mask, the death mask of, of, of Tutankhamun. His name literally means the living image of Amon, uh, the god Amon. So the king was in the image of God, but nobody else was. What the Jewish writers, the Hebrew writers have done is to take that concept and say, no, every single human being is made in the image of God. Okay, I've got to digress for a minute. I want you to come back next week to class. If you're Which they probably here. otherwise wouldn't have done. <laughs> if you're not here um, uh, today and you're watching this on the internet, tune in or come next week. Because one of the one of the areas where I believe many scholars uh, fail to appreciate the fullness of the Genesis 1 account is their failure to hear it through the ears of Moses who, as the Stephen said in Acts, was schooled in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And so you take, for example, John Walton, a friend, mm-hmm. who sees the serpent in Genesis 3 as, as chaos. I think he fails to appreciate the depths of which to Moses the serpent as an asp would almost be a god, not chaos. I think there's a difference in the Egyptian approach. And I say that because Moses would have been blown away being raised in Pharaoh's household. Pharaoh Seti, who would have been the image of God, it would have blown Moses' head to hear someone say, wait a minute, everyone is in the image of God. That, 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 is, that is a mind-boggling concept for Moses. It was, it was a total game-changer. And, and again, you know, our modern society believes in equality. It's a big thing about it, but finds it difficult to know where to ground that because people are not equal in terms of their uh, gifts, their accomplishments, their anything really. We are, we're not very equal. Um, so only in the infinite love and regard of, and value of God do we have an equal 
grounding uh, and value. Um, so I, I think it's a hugely significant contribution that we can make to our societies to put ground under their feet at their best moments. Okay. So let's take, for example, a modern issue here. Yeah. We live in a culture in America, I believe you do as well in England, where the culture tries to say, let's treat everyone fairly. Mm-hmm. Regardless of um, uh, their age, yep. regardless of their gender, regardless of their gender identity, regardless of their sexual persuasion, regardless of their education, regardless of their income, regardless of their political affiliation, let's treat everybody fairly and equally. Yep. All right. As a Christian or as a Jew who understands this issue, I think that, that it's right we should treat people equally yep. because people have this inherent equal value, fair? Yep. yep. And yet, if there is no God, if our value is not premised upon a passage like this, Why can we not say some people are genetically inferior and do not deserve to be treated equally? Well, and that is sadly sometimes the route that societies have gone if they don't have this bulwark of of, of humanity and sanity. Good work. Good word. Bulwark. See, here's where it drives me. We live in a generation where people function with a Judeo-Christian morality behind their understanding of equality. But, while that can inform us on how we should treat people, if you rip that away, and you take away the generation that lives now under that morality, the next generation will have no trouble saying, if you're considered a sexual deviant, you do not get equal treatment. If you're considered... Uh, uh, a, a genetic deviant, you do not e- get equal treatment. If you're, cons- I mean, if if there's only 100 acres of food available, and there are people that need 200 of acres of food to eat it, then we're going to select those who are most valuable, and we will discard those who are not, or we will make them servants, and we'll make that judgment based upon list of factors. It's yep. a scary proposition. Yep. And I think there's also something wonderful about the givenness of our value, that we don't have to achieve it, we don't have to earn it, uh, and we don't ever have to fear losing it. If you base your value on such value as you can glean from other people and don't bring God into the equation at all, um, you, you could lose that, either because these people might stop loving you or because they might die. So when my parents died, did I suddenly become less valuable? On on an impersonal view of the universe, I think you'd have to say yes. But we don't have to say that. We we can say no. Your value is given, it is infinite, and it's unassailable and unlosable. Huge implications also for how we treat people. If we believe what... if, If we're not just giving lip service to Scripture, but we believe it... It should transform how we treat people. 
So ethics and psychology, I think. All right. Uh, fourth, fourth meaning of image of God. I think it's about creativity. Uh, if we're made in the image of the creator, it's not surprising that we are creative. And that is what you discover wherever you see human beings. You see, you look at, we had an exhibition at the British Museum a little while ago of uh, Ice Age art. And it's phenomenal. Wherever you see human beings, you see them doing something more than functional. You'll see them painting something, decorating something, trying to make something beautiful. Uh, Everywhere you turn, that is what you see. And I think it's hugely important uh, that we are, our creativity is is a reflection of the creativity of God. Uh, and, And by our creativity, we reflect something of who God intends us to be. And it's not just a functional thing. It's not just a, everything has to be done for, you know, to help us live, to help us eat, to, that sort of thing. No, our art is part of uh, the teeming variety and diversity and beauty of life. Um, I, I would venture to say that is at least partly borne out by the significance of God telling um, Adam... All right, name the animals. Use your creative mind. Yep. Come up with names. Yep. You get to name them. I mean, all of Genesis 1 is God naming things. God names light and dark, and he, he calls these things names. But then all of a sudden he says, all right, I'm giving you dominion. It includes dominion. Yep. You got all these other, you call them what you can creatively come up with, and that will be their name. Yep, which is why we're lumped with things like aardvark. <laughs> <laughs> or armadillo. <laughs> Instead of target practice. <laughs> um, I, walked out of, I walked out of our home one day this week, and we've got a, a gate in front of the, 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 the house, and I was going to walk out the gate, and as I went up to the keypad to punch in the code, um, I was greeted by this lovely skunk, who was standing right there, two feet away from me. And I thought, what do I do? Well, the last thing in the world I do is open the gate and let it run into the skunk. Yes. I backed away and decided it was not time for me to leave that gate. And (laughs) as soon as I got far enough back, I ran. All right, creativity. And, And... If we're allowed to go outside Genesis for a moment. Yeah. Uh, With the tabernacle and the temple, they're told to uh, decorate it with precious stones for beauty. Oh, there's no question. And Bezalel is given the spirit of God in order to be creative with carving and with metalwork and embroidery and all that sort of thing. To pull that off. To pull that off. And, And if you don't have a copy of my Torah devotional, I urge you to... Let Buy one, know. obviously. You don't? To, to, no, I do. No, no, oh, you I, do. I, I yeah, do. yeah. Um, I started to say, I thought. Yeah, yeah, you gave me one. I you, didn't you, buy you it. You probably posted it for sale on eBay. Um, they do bring 10 cents. Um, <laughs> but there is a devotional in there about the pomegranates that are around the hem of the garments. And, and those pomegranates that are there in, in specific colors, it's a decorative flair that God adds. Don't look at the sunset and not realize that God's not interested in beauty. And so if he's made us in his image, we not only should be interested in beauty, but we should be displaying 
you know, in, in the sense of if we are the icon of God, we should be displaying his beauty. Can, uh, can I just tell commitment. a little story? Sure. Um, because I've experienced depression myself, I sometimes get people coming and talking to me about their depression. And I, somebody came to see me once and was talking about that. And I have a kind of mental checklist of the sorts of things that often lead to, to depression. I'd been through this. I couldn't work out what was going on in this person's situation. And we'd kind of given up and were just um, chatting. And I said, what are you going to do when you leave university? And they said, well, what I'd like to do is uh, an art course. But of course, I couldn't justify that. I said, what do you mean you couldn't justify that? And they said, well, it doesn't advance the kingdom, does it? Somehow we've given people an impression that God's not interested in art, that he's not interested in beauty. Um, And no wonder she was trying to suppress a God-given part of her in the name of God. Uh, And I said, I think we've just found the cause of your depression. Hmm. Um, But we've got to stop giving people that impression. That is a calling to be deeply human, to reflect the image of God, to reflect the creativity of God in profound ways. And it's a wonderful vocation. I love that. All right, number five. Uh, Relationality. So if we're made in the image of God and God is Trinity, if God is relationship, it's not surprising that we are relational beings. That's part of what we are for. Um, and I think that is that chimes with our deepest instincts. If you ask people what's the most valuable thing in their lives, it almost certainly will be a relationship or relationships. Their friendships, their lifelong relationships, those are the things that matter. Why? Because that's who we are. That's who we're made in the image of the triune God. Uh, and our relationality is a reflection of him. All right, that's well said. Number six. Number six is sexuality. You'll notice in one of the bits you underlined earlier, uh, it said um, in the image of God, he made them male and female. He made them. So our sexual differentiation is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. I know other species are also sexually differentiated, But there is, in human sexuality, a call to community. It's a way of saying, you cannot be an island in tower of yourself. You have to reach out to others. Otherwise, you will not be a fulfilled person. And that's part of what sexuality is about. But God is... You would not term God a sexual being in the sense of male or female. No, that's true. Uh, So our... Sexual differentiation is not itself a reflection of God, but it is. But you need both to begin to reflect who God is. You need both these ways of being human uh, in order to reflect something of the greatness of God. Okay. It's a bit like wearing the, the, those kind of you know, spectacles that you have to put both eye, eyes on. Well, having two eyes is a bit similar. That helps you to see something properly. Having two genders helps you to see God properly. All right. Um, and then uh, seventh and final? Lastly, um, uniqueness. Um, we are each of us made in the image of God, and yet we are utterly different. 
And that means that we are each of us unique and that uniqueness, we need each other in order to have a wider, deeper, larger perspective on who God is. The analogy I sometimes use is that of an an art class where you have a model in the middle and artists or at the side all drawing the model. And if they're good artists, they'll each produce a good representation of the model, but from a different angle. Uh, We are self-portraits of God from a different angle. And I have a particular perspective on God, um, but it's very narrow. It's just mine. It's just my little salami slice. Uh, I need to engage with you to expand my understanding of who God is, to limit my own limitations, uh, to give me a wider, deeper picture of who God is. I need you. You need. We need each other if we're, because we are each unique. And I would long for the Christian community to be a place that enables people to be who they are uniquely, doesn't try and fit us into a mold. Uh, one commentator said um, uh, that when we, when God freezes water, every snowflake is unique. When we freeze water, we get ice cubes. <laughs> uh, they're all exactly the same. Uh, and there is this tendency to kind of homogenize. And the church should be the place where we rejoice in any, any difference that is not sinful. All right. So um, these are the ways you have explained what the meaning is to you in yeah. terms of seven different features. Yep. Fair? Yep. Fair. All right. Now, we're reading this in Genesis 1, though we referenced Genesis 9. But humanity falls. Yep. And with the fall comes a curse. With the fall comes death. Yep. Uh, with the fall, we leave uh, Eden, which is pleasant in Hebrew, and we are abundant, and we go into thorns and thistles uh, uh, and scarcity. Um, Anti-Eden. So what happens to the image of God that is in humanity after the fall. It gets obscured, but it doesn't go away. It's not lost, it's just obscured. So with these, for instance, uh, we start off with uh, dominion. We're meant to reflect the rule of God. We still have dominion, but it tends to be exploitative. We tend to exploit that which we rule. And you see that uh, in human governance you see that in our attitude to the natural order. It becomes skewed. It's not the kind of rule God exercises over us. It, we try to dominate. Dominion becomes domination. Um, the second one there is uh, value. Um, we still have that value. It's still wrong to murder. It's still wrong to curse or speak disrespectfully of people. Uh, But we, A, forget the value that each other have and don't treat them accordingly, and B, we forget the value that we have. And that becomes an anxiety and a a, a deep disruption of of our uh, shalom. Yeah, low self-esteem is very real. Low self-esteem, that's right. All right, let's Um, keep going. So so how? I, I heard 
a very formative concept when I was young that, that uh, made sense to me theologically and, and as I've grown has is, is been confirmed. And that is, sin is not so much a brand new something, but sin is a distortion of that which is pure or good. Uh, I liken it oftentimes to a cancerous cell. Yep. Takes a, a good cell and makes it cancerous. Sin, so, so there is a time and place for eating and even eating tasty things. But if you eat in excess uh, uh, poorly, you've got gluttony, which is a sin. Yep. Uh, there is room for good self-esteem. Um, but if you have low self-esteem or hyper self-esteem, arrogance, uh, uh, you, you, you have just taken something, moved it into sin. It's a bit like C.S. Lewis's thing about uh, in the Screwtape Letters where Screwtape says to his nephew, senior devil to a junior devil, um, despite our research department's best efforts, we've never actually been able to invent a pleasure. <laughs> All we can do is to try and get human beings to practice their pleasures uh, at times or in ways that are disadvantageous to them and, and contrary to the the enemy's will. Uh, we, all pleasure is God-given in the end. Amen. All right. Equality of people then. Uh, um, well, that goes askew because we don't practice it. We get ideas of either ourselves or of a particular grouping, usually the grouping of which we are a part, funnel enough, uh, being superior to others or more important than others or whatever. And we, and we don't practice that equality. <laughs> We're being upstaged. <laughs> it's not hard, it has to be said. Hi, Caleb. Hi. You want to come up here? Come here. <laughs> Made in the image of God. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. So, um, uh, let's keep going. And actually, there's probably an eighth one, and that is um, the image of God is also about us being children of God in the same way because because Adam's children Adam and Eve's children are talked about as being in the image of, of, of Adam so there's something of that going on there as well that's exactly right that's exactly right uh, Genesis that's right he's that's saying the it the most too. coherent thing either of any of us have said Genesis 5 verse 3 says that uh, Adam bore, uh, fathered Seth and Seth was a ch- in his image. So, so I've got to go. I got to go. Um, my background for a moment. Let's let's get linguistic. All right. Same concept that we were doing before with the other things of it being skewed and marred is true for all of these. I think we can work through that ourselves. Yep. Yep. But we're dealing with the Hebrew word zelem, which is translated image. Hebrew word zelem. Uh, there's a Greek word that's used in the Septuagint that uh, may be a little easier for those folks to remember. Thank you. Um, but it's the word, uh, whoops, it's got smooth breathing, uh, icon. And we get the English icon from it. Icon. And the idea is is that we are an image or an icon of God. Now, if you look at these passages... Yes. If you look at these passages, 
I, the one that I find most fascinating, and I'm going to let you talk about while I take him back down and am not a distraction, <laughs> is the one in uh, Romans 1, Romans 1, 23, and y'all will know this, they exchanged... They exchanged the uh, glory of the immortal for the images, icons, images of reptiles and people and all. So an exchange of the glory of God. And I would suggest that Paul's actually talking about that glory that of which we were made to be an image. Because Paul does use we're to be the image of Christ over and over and over, icon of Christ. But we exchanged, humanity exchanged the glory of God, which is the image we were, for the image of just base, ordinary humans and animals. Comment, please. (laughs) Well, I think there's absolutely a kind of obscuring of the image. We are meant to be reflecting the, the, the glory of God Actually, we diminish that, we obscure that. So, for instance, our creativity remains. We remain creative people. It remains a real impulse in who we are, and we're not fulfilled without it. But we sometimes use that to produce things like pornography or or to do art for the glorification of uh, our our state rather than somebody else's state. Um, In Anglo-Saxon times... Uh, I gather that they used to build their most impressive buildings not in the center of their country where it would be secure and you'd have thought that they'd do it. They put it right on the edge. Why? To intimidate and show off to others, to the, to the nearby country and say, look what we can do. Now that's how our good God-given impulse of creativity uh, gets used in other ways and and, in unhelpful ways. That's a a beautiful explanation. Um, And if we take that Romans passage into its context here, it says um, that God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Whoops. Uh, uh, Now, let's back up. God's invisible attributes... His eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So Paul's got creation in mind as he's writing. In the things that have been made, created, so they're without excuse. Because they, although they knew God, i.e. were made in his image, they didn't honor him as God. They didn't give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. Sophos, they became mores. The Greek word, it's a moron we get from it. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God that they were made in for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, again, those are the very things that we were to have dominion over. 
Those are the four categories that were listed in Genesis 1. Paul's clearly thinking Genesis 1 as he's writing this passage. And what I find scary or sobering, maybe, sobering's a better word, is that those of us who do not exercise and walk in the beauty of being the glory of the immortal God, being an icon, being in his image, and we don't treat people that way, God says that has grave consequences. And it's happened already when people don't honor him as God, don't give thanks, they become futile in their thinking, and then it continues with more. God gives them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, the bodies that are made in the image of God. Yep. Uh, And that obscuring that you have there is is what goes on in all these different uh, refractions of the image of God. Um, it's no longer visible in the way that it's intended to be. We can't look at each other and simply read off how God is um, because it's distorted and warped. Well, um, so the good news is a little bit later in Romans, little Romans 8 action. (laughs) Those that God foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Yeah, so the the good news is that God doesn't leave us in our warpedness, um, but he comes to put it right, to clean it up, to restore the masterpiece of his own creation. Um, First of all, in the person of Jesus, and if you look at those, the the categories uh, in uh, in the person of Jesus himself, you see him doing that. You see him treating people with the value that they essentially have. You see him ruling creation in the way it was intended to be ruled, stilling the storm, uh, defusing nature of its threat. You see him treating people with equality. You see his creativity, not least in the way that he uses uh, words and his oratory and his rhetoric and uh, the balance of things like the Beatitudes. Uh, you see his relationality in his relationships with Mary and Martha and Lazarus and, and John and the others. Um, you see his uniqueness coming out and how he enables other people to be unique. So first in the person of Jesus and then secondly it begins to happen in the church. The church is meant to be the place where our icons, our images are being polished up so that they become translucent again like stained glass windows to the beauty of the light coming of God through us. So we could say that Christ, who Paul calls in Romans the new Adam, um, that Christ perfectly projects the image of God as a perfect human. And that's what Paul says about him. <clears throat> yeah. All right. So and that's that's the model upon which we need to uh, be polished up. And if we go then to Second Corinthians to see how Paul consistently uses these images in his writings, he speaks about how compared to Moses who had to wear a veil, um, we with unveiled faces are beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed 
into the same image, icon, from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Paul's saying exactly what you said. It is a transformation. He'd read my book. That's that's the thing. Um, And therefore, we need to look at each other and wait until we see the glory there. Because it's it's there, and slowly as we get polished up, you see more and more of it. And we are to mediate the glory of God to one another. That's what we're for. All right. I don't want to leave this without one other passage that's so, to me, on target with what you're saying and so profound in its implications in the way Paul says it. In 1 Corinthians, so this likely, Charles Mickey's here, he's spent a lot of time studying this, likely precedes the 2 Corinthians passage. Um, Paul tells the Corinthians uh, um, in chapter 15 about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and, and how it's been confirmed by so many hundreds and hundreds of witnesses that were still around to be quizzed and all the rest. But then he starts talking about the implications of the resurrection of Jesus for us. Raise your hand in here if you think you're probably going to die one day. <laughs> okay, then this really applies to you. If you raised your hand, it applies to me. What happens after we die? What becomes of our body? What kind of body do we have? What kind of existence do we have? Paul writes about that in 1 Corinthians 15. But he writes about it not just for what it is then. He writes about it for what it means to us today. And so if we pick up with this concept of working through this image of God, Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 15, starting with verse 2042, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What's raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body, still a body. If there is a natural body, there's a spiritual body. Thus it's written. Now look. The first man, Adam, became a living being. A living being made in the image of God. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. The last Adam being Christ. It's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was born from the earth, a man of dust, The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also those who are of heaven. And then look what we have here. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. As I read that, Paul's saying that we were made in the image of God and then Seth and others in the image of of Adam. And so we in the image of Adam, the man of dust. But Jesus, a resurrected spiritual reality, being, we will be made into that image 
in that day. Is that fair? Yes, I think that's very fair. It is uh, that process of uh, restoring the masterpiece will one day be complete. Right now, when we look at each other, sometimes it takes a bit of imagination to see the glory, um, or at least a huge amount of attentiveness. Um, One day, that will be immediate and obvious. And I would suggest that on that day, we will see fullness of what it means to be made in the image of God, both role of dominion, know you not that you'll be judges, Mm -hmm. um, having real value, being all equal in the eyes of God and welcome at the table, still having creativity. Do not think that when you die, you go to heaven and you spend eternity just sitting, kneeling, standing, or face down singing praise to God. God has us intended for a real earth, a real total existence, but one that's imperishable. And I can't explain what that is because I don't know, but that is the promise, which will include creativity, relationality, not sexuality in the sense of uh, given in marriage and things like that, but not the act of sex, but the idea of community that is is conveyed within that. And even uniqueness. We are not all the same after this life. Is that fair? Absolutely. And in fact, the bit just before the bit in 1 Corinthians 15 that you quoted uh, has, you know, not all flesh is alike. There's one flesh for human beings, another for animals. The, the diversity of what God has created is going to be there in the new creation in the way that it's there in the old In a creation. glorious way. In a glorious way. Plato, the Greeks at the time found diversity a problem. Uh, there's, a, there's a piece of work um, by a Platonist writer called Origen uh, who says, uh, talks about the problem of evil and he talks about the same things that we normally talk about like, you know, uh, death and pain and suffering and disease and that sort of thing. But he includes... And people have different jobs. <laughs> How do you explain that? <laughs> they have a real problem with diversity. Paul doesn't. Yeah. Because it's part of creation. It's going to be part of the new creation. And, Paul, and that's the unique. Yeah. Paul says God gives different jobs to different people. Yeah. Just as he gives different gifts. Yes. So um, um, I hope that this has helped you start thinking. And I'd urge you over lunch today... Uh, if you went to early service, you're probably ready to go eat. If not, late service, you'll get to hear Pastor Jarrett talk about James 3, uh, the beginning, and, and uh, uh, the tongue. Uh, next week, by the way, if you come, uh, I'm set to preach big church. So I'll preach early service here. We'll do class on Genesis and then get to preach second service. So you'll want to watch off the Internet or flee. But if you do come, uh, it'll be a chance to talk about later, James. But he'll be talking about the tongue. He'll be talking about these types of issues of how we better portray the image of God. And I want you to be thinking about this. Talk about it over lunch. Doesn't Uh, have to be pizza. (laughs) But it can be. (laughs) Um, Anyway, um, would you join me in thanking Michael for giving us this time with this? Um, typically at the end of class, uh, uh, I bless uh, everyone in the name of Jesus, but I'd ask you to pronounce a blessing or
pray a blessing over everybody I, for us as I we close lo- out? I would, I would love to. Lord, thank you so much for the privilege of being made in your image, of ref- being made to reflect your glory to one another and to your world. And we pray that you'll help us to do that more effectively. We pray that we may know our own value and recognize uh, and treat people with the value that you have given them. We pray that you'll uh, help us to treat people equally, that the church may be a place where people know each other to be equally valued and loved and regarded. Uh, We pray that you'll help us to rule your creation in the way that you rule us. We pray for our creativity that it may blossom and flourish. We pray for our relationality. We thank you for our friends, uh, for our families, uh, those who are important to us. Pray that we may reflect you to them. Uh, We pray that we may be faithful in our sexuality. And we pray that you'll make us the unique people that you created us to be. Help us to enable one another to be that. And help us together, we pray, to be the stained glass window through which your light can pour and your beauty can be seen and known and you will be glorified. Amen. Amen.